Um, and that's the uh, thing about mission. Mission isn't something that uh, we do over there, wherever there is. It's something that is done in here, uh, that doesn't stop until it reaches the ends of the earth. Because when the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, takes hold of our heart, which is just another way of saying when Christ takes hold of our heart, then it, he, creates a, a, a restlessness, a glorious restlessness for the knowledge of the glory of God uh, to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And um, I want to uh, turn your attention to the book of Matthew uh, and to the so-called Sermon on the Mount. But I want to say by way of introduction that this morning and this evening we're really going to be uh, if you'll forgive the football illusion, uh, playing a, a game of two halves. I want to talk to you in both contexts uh, about the subject of light. I'm not going to talk to you about it as a, as a physicist, but as a, a Bible teacher. Because I'm sure you'll know, uh, and if you don't, I'm very happy to tell you that the theme of light is a very prominent and very significant biblical uh, motif. You remember that in uh, John chapter 8, Jesus in, uh, called himself the light of the world. Well, um, just listen to uh, the words that uh, Liam began the missionary supper with uh, last evening from John 12. Um, Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. So the question that I'm posing today, and we're looking at this morning and this evening, is quite simply... Uh, how does uh, Jesus, the light of the world, shine? If Jesus is the light of the world, how does he shine? Now, I have a long-standing love affair with the Sermon on the Mount. And it became particularly uh, helpful and pertinent to me when I got into church planting uh, over 30 years ago. Um, and in fact, if the Bible did church planting manuals, then this would probably be the best church planting manual in the world uh, ever. But perhaps those of you who are familiar with this part of Matthew's gospel are a little confused about that because you know that no matter where you read in the Sermon on the Mount, no matter how much you search the details of the text in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, um, that you can't see church planting anywhere. So perhaps it's the case of me finding my pet theme and reading that into the text, imposing that up on the text. Perhaps that's what I'm doing, and that could be the case. That could so easily be the case. I've read so many hobby horses, I've almost thought about putting my occupation down on various forms as a jockey. Um, and the thing about the hobby horses that I've ridden is that not all of them have been winners. But church planting isn't one of them. Um, there is nothing faddish about church planting. There is nothing trendy about church planting. It's not something that is trendy for the young and excitable. It really isn't. I mean, look at me. I, I'm, I'm not trendy, I'm not young, and I'm certainly not excitable, as you'll discover. But I am utterly persuaded of the missional imperative of church planting. Now let me clarify, when I talk about church planting, I am not talking about the starting of a new meeting, I am not talking about the launching of a new service, I am not talking about the opening of a new building. 
When I talk about church planting, what I'm talking about, because this is what the Bible talks about when it talks about it, I'm talking about planting a group of people in a particular location so that they thrive and flourish as they image God and commend Christ to a particular people. Let me just repeat that for you. Church planting is uh, the, the, the planting of a group of people in a particular location so that they image God and commend Christ to a particular people. Now when that is your definition of church planting, then you can turn to the book of Matthew in general and the Sermon on the Mount in particular and you can see that it is all about church planting. Because the Sermon on the Mount is not about personal ethics, about how I live my life in the world, not primarily. It's not a New Testament version of the Mosaic Law that is intended to expose how sinful we are so that we turn to Christ, not primarily. It's about church planting. Uh, If you're not convinced yet, as you may not be, well, let's dig into it. I hope that you'll um, get as, uh, as persuaded as I am. Now, before we look at the text, um, we need to look at the context, because context is everything. My calves are killing me um, means one thing in a gym and an altogether different thing in a farmyard. It's the, it's the context that determines the difference. And the Gospel of Matthew is no different at all. Matthew has been showing us just how meticulously uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes, all the dreams, and all the promises of the Old Testament. You can flick uh, back through your Bibles, and you can see the number of times that Matthew cites the Old Testament, how he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, how he quotes from the prophet Hosea, and the prophet Jeremiah. And each of those is like a, a, a hyperlink. That is, your cursor hovers over it, you click it, and it takes you right back, not just to that verse, but to the entire book from which it's come. And it's not just these quotations either that are important. It's the details of the narrative. So Jesus comes into the promised land as Israel came into the promised land. Jesus stands where the people of God in the the Old Testament fell. Jesus succeeds where the people of God in the Old Testament failed. Jesus conquered where the people of God in the Old Testament were defeated. Jesus prospered where the people of God in the Old Testament withered. As they went through the River Jordan, so did Jesus. As they were tested in the wilderness, so was Jesus. As they inhabited the promised land, Likewise, Jesus. And it was only when Jesus was in the land of promise that that land was a place of peace. And Matthew, in chapter 4, immediately before the Sermon on the Mount, shows us Jesus casting out demons and and, uh, defeating sickness. Jesus demonstrating that now he is here, the promises of God have reached their climax, their glorious fulfillment. So to understand the Gospel of Matthew, to understand the Sermon on the Mount, you need to understand that Old Testament background. Jesus didn't just pop up out of nowhere. He occupied a particular place. He inhabited a particular history. And he, he, he linked on, he, he dovetailed into particular hopes and fears. So when we get to Matthew 5, the stage has been set. And what is happening here is that Jesus, the king, 
And Matthew has shown him to be that. He's gathering his subjects together. He's gathering his people, forming them as a distinctive community under his rule. To put it another way, Jesus in Matthew 5 plants a church. That's what Jesus does. Because the ones that he's talking to, his disciples that he's gathering, these are the beneficial, these are the blessed ones that he talks about in the so-called Beatitudes. These are the beneficiaries of God's mercy. These are the remnant that God has kept, the remnant for which God has now come, the remnant through which God is going to fulfill all of his purposes. So when Jesus just look at verse 13, uh, declares them to be the salt of the earth. Jesus isn't telling them that they're there to preserve culture. He's not telling them that they're there to, uh, to, to purify society. He's not telling them that they're the ones who will add taste to a rather bland environment. No, he's, he's picking up a, an Old Testament illusion. And he's saying that what was true of salt in the Old Testament is true of you now. We don't have time to, uh, to demonstrate this, but if you, want to, uh, if you want me to cite the verses, I'm very happy to do so after. But what Jesus is doing when he says to this motley crew gathered around him in the midst of the multitude, he's saying to them, you are the true covenant community. You are the true covenant community. Israel, that old covenant community, the old people of God as it were, uh, they are under judgment. So look how Jesus goes on. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, i.e. Israel, how shall its saltiness be restored? It can't be, it says. It's a rhetorical question. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That was the exile. That's what happened. That's what happened even as they came back. So now they're under the heel of Roman rule. The salt has lost its saltiness, but God's purposes have not been frustrated. His promises will not fail. He says to this motley crew, you are the salt of the earth. You see, from the ashes of judgment, the true Israel has been called. And this ragbag crew of disciples is the first fruits. Which is why he can then say to them, in verse 14, you are the light of the world. Because what God is doing in forming and fashioning this people under his rule is forming a people through which the light of his glory will radiate around the world. You remember the question at the beginning? If Jesus is the light of the world, how will the light shine? Through his people. You do get that, don't you? Because that is so critical. That is so, so invigorating. Just as God promised he would do in Jesus, he is doing. You see, what we have in verse 14 is a glorious description of the church. It's a city that is set on a hill. Now, a city that is set on a hill is something that is visible, isn't it? By definition, that's what it is. It's demonstrable. You can see it. It, it, it lives. It exists. It has been, as it were. It's clear. It's unambiguous. It's unavoidable. A city set on a hill is something that makes a statement. Every city around the world does that. It's making a statement about the, the country of which it is, particularly so of capital cities. 
It's articulating a particular truth. It's celebrating a, a particular culture. It's telling a particular story. It's, it's selling a dream. It's capturing the imagination. It's filling the senses. It's stirring the affections. That's what a city is meant to do. And that's what the church is. That's what God's purpose for his church has always been. I love that verse in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Where Paul writing to uh, his, uh, his friend, his colleague, uh, the young man that he's mentored who he's dispatched to Ephesus uh, to get the church back onto gospel tracks. He says to him, he says, Timothy, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And then we have this great description of the church, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The church is the foundation and the pillar of the truth. That is, the church puts a gospel on display. Now in Ephesus, there was a temple to uh, the, god, the goddess uh, Diana. And it was a magnificent, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a magnificent edifice. And there were a number of pillars that were 18 meters high. Uh, and on it was placed a marble roof that could be seen for miles around. People would come just to look and gaze and wonder at this, this magnificent structure. Now that's probably what Paul had in mind when he talks about the church as being, um, as, as being the, the, the foundation and pillar of the, of the truth, the gospel. That is, the church holds the gospel up for the world to see. It puts it on display. We do as the people of God. It parades it before the world in order to incite admiration and jealousy. How? Well, the answer is right here. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That is, through our faith in that to which the law and the prophets pointed, namely Christ and his work. That's, that's what the verse 17, etc. Is, is showing. And what Jesus goes on to show in the Sermon on the Mount, it's through our distinctive attitudes, through our different, our radical relationships. You see, church is not a building. Whatever you move into as a church, as Charlotte Chapel here, that's not going to be this. No, Jesus isn't talking about a building. He's not talking about a meeting in the first instance. He's talking about a gathered people. He's talking about you. You with flesh and blood. You with, uh, uh, who, who, who's breathing, who's listening. You who are here now. That's what he's talking about. And as he goes on, he describes what that church should be like. Remember, this is Jesus planting a church. And this is a church that is characterized by service. It's a church that's characterized by faithfulness. It's a church that's characterized by forgiveness. It's a church that is characterized by generosity, by integrity, by vulnerability, by love and trust and gentleness. It's a church that is characterized by a deep dependence upon, upon the Holy Spirit. It's a church that is characterized by good lives that are lived well out in the world. That's what the church is that Jesus is planting. It's a church, a community of God's people where people come into in order to encounter Christ. 
as they encounter the gospel in everything that we do and in all that we are. You see, what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5 is gathering his core group together. The public launch of this church was a long way off. There was a lot to do. Jesus had a lot to do to get it ready for that. He had a lot to do as he taught them in this material here, for example. A lot to do in training them. A lot to do in demonstrating the nature of the kingdom of God. Oh yes, he had a lot to do as well in terms of dying and rising again. To secure this church, not just in time, but in eternity. And as he died and rose again, he secured the right to give the Spirit that he gave to the church so that on their launch day, which was the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, this church that Jesus was planting here was ready to unleash on the world. You see, we as the church that Jesus planted here back then, we're not just those that Jesus has taught. But we are those that Jesus has loved, with those that Jesus has rescued, with those that Jesus has renewed, with those in whom Jesus dwells. That's what his church is. The church is a glorious phenomenon. I get nervous when I say that word phenomenon. In fact, there are two words that I get very nervous when I'm saying preaching. Organism is one. Um, phenomenon is another. But I'd learned to say it through the Muppets. I had the great privilege um, some uh, months ago of uh, meeting one of the Muppeteers. Uh, she was married to uh, um, a man uh, and uh, she was uh, part of the team. And uh, she was actually uh, the Muppeteer who helped me say phenomenon. Because of the song, do you remember it? Phenomenon. Du, 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 du. Phenomenon. Du, 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 du. The sound crew asked me if I was going to sing during my talk, and I, I said I wasn't going to promise that I wouldn't. So, um, but so that's what the church is. It's a phenomenon. It's that which defies explanation apart from the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the indwelling Spirit. Not just those that Jesus has taught, but those that Jesus has loved, rescued, renewed, and in whom Jesus dwells. That is the glory of the church. And as those people, as being this church that Jesus himself planted, and every local church is a time and space expression of this church that Jesus himself planted, and Jesus himself bought with his own blood, well then, we're the ones who are to welcome others as those who have been welcomed. Welcoming others isn't just a strategy. It's an instinct that we have because we have been welcomed by God. He has opened his arms to us as strangers and has made us his household. We are those who, who sing as those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, whose hearts have been set on fire because we know our Savior and we know what he has done for us. We are those who pray. The church that prays as those that have a deep and a personal relationship with our Heavenly Father. We are those who serve, not because we have to or because we're told to, but because we are those who have been served by Christ Himself. And as those who have been served, we become the servers. We are those who forgive. Again, not because we have to or because we're told to, but because we are the forgiven. 
And those who know that they're forgiven are instinctively, intuitively, necessarily the forgivers. We preach as those who believe the gospel, who believe that the Bible is all about Christ. We give as those to whom much has been given without expecting anything back in return. We live as those whose lives have been purchased at an incredible cost. That's what it means to be the church. You see, the Sermon on the Mount isn't about a meeting, is it? It most certainly isn't about a meeting. It's about a covenant people. It's about a people that Jesus gathers, that Jesus calls, who he wants to live real lives in a broken and a messy world. Because he takes broken and messy people and he begins his work of reclamation. He begins his work of recreation. He begins his work of new creation. You see, it's through us, as the covenant community, that the light of Christ, the light of the world, emanates. And Jesus has no other means by which his light will radiate but us as his people. This is his primary mission strategy in the world. I come from the city of Sheffield which uh, is in the north of England, but clearly not the north of the United Kingdom. It's in the Midlands, really. Um, But don't say that to a Sheffielder. Um, And uh, it's a a great city that nestles in the foothills of the the Peak District, which is kind of the the, the bottom part of the Pennines. Uh, And um, I um, like uh, bike riding, road bike riding, and so... um, I go out from my house and I have a a six-mile climb out uh, into the hills, which is a complete pain going that way. But when you get to the top, you turn around because I have to stop just to get breath for about 30 minutes or so. Um, You you, you turn around and, and, and you gaze. And if you do a night ride, and there's something particularly beautiful about a night ride, you look down on a city from the Peak District, and you see the lights uh, flickering and shimmering as the heat of the city rises. It's a captivating scene, and I've spent many an hour just standing, sitting, watching. Well, the church, being that city set on a hill, is a church that also is a city that also shimmers and pulsates. But it does so with the grace and the mercy of God. That's what the church is. It's a pulsating, shimmering city where the grace and the mercy of God is gloriously at work. And it does it through us living out lives of covenant faithfulness, displaying God's covenant grace. So what's the takeaway in all of this? Well, it's quite simply be the people of God. And this is a mission weekend. But be the people of God here. Be the people of God in this city of Edinburgh, in the neighborhoods where you're located. It's get excited about being the church. You know, I, I, I despair sometimes when I hear, hear people talking about church. I despair when I hear non-Christians be so dismissive of church. But we as Christians have, have so much responsibility to bear for their dismissal of this thing, this phenomenon of grace that is the church of Jesus Christ. So be excited about the church. Be excited about being the people of God. Invest in the relationships among you. 
Learn how to, to gospel one another. If, if I was right in what I said at the beginning, that mission is that which uh, captures our affections, but then creates a restlessness so until the, the knowledge of the glory of God uh, fills uh, as much as a fills the earth like the waters cover the sea. If that's so, well then let's get the gospel into our hearts. Let's gospel one another so that's the case. Let's speak truth to one another in love. Let's bring the truth to the gospel of the gospel to bear when we're, we're suffering under the weight of our own importance, when we're being crushed by the weight of the expectations of our careers and our relationships and our marriages and our families. Let's bring the gospel to bear that speaks about Christ justifying us so that we can rest and we can be the men and women when we're suffering under the weight of our own guilt uh, as, as a memory of our past keeps flooding back let's speak the gospel to one another so that we might rest in God's forgiveness so that we might then be better forgivers of one another you can't be the people of God passively you can only be the people of God as a, as a gospel captures your heart as you believe in Christ as the spirit ministers him to you and then you live actively as you seek to reach out to others in your own family, in your own church, and out into the world. See, mission is that which must thrive among you as a church, as you love Christ, as you commend Him to others. And from you, mission will then radiate outward. It's traditional, isn't it, to uh, distinguish between um, home missions and overseas missions. Well, at one level, that's a, a useful uh, distinction, but it is actually a false dichotomy. And some missionaries get worried when they hear a church talking a lot, one of their sending churches talking a lot about mission at home, because they think that they will forget them that they won't have time to, as it were, look up and look out. But nothing could be farther from the truth. If the gospel, if Christ has got our hearts, then we really won't be able to do anything else. We won't be able to stop until the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. So work hard at establishing the gospel among yourselves. Work hard at engaging in your area, building relationships, sharing your lives with your neighbors, seeking the good of the city in which you live. Yes, be an alternative city in this city of Edinburgh through your lives that are energized by the Spirit and, and from your hearts that are captured by Christ. Make a compelling case for the Savior. It's what the Apostle Peter says, isn't it? When he says, by your, good by your good deeds, by your good lives together, you will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And you'll silence them, not just so that they shut up, but so that they glorify God on the day of visitation. So live invitationally as a city of refuge with the gospel being both declared and displayed plant communities of light litter the city with them make that your missionary goal not only here in Sheffield but around Scotland around the United Kingdom around the world whatever other missionary work you're involved in make this your ultimate goal that you'll see churches planted to the glory of God for the fame of Christ by the power of the Spirit 
that everything else is a means to that end. That is a gathering of a group of people who live under the reign of King Jesus and display him to the world because from that, the light of the world will radiate to the area around. Put the Savior at the center of all that you are and all that you do. Celebrate him, commend him in everything. In every song that you sing together, in every prayer that you pray together, in every sermon that you preach, in every relationship that you enjoy, in every structure that you build, in every decision that you make, in every home that you live, in every purchase that you engage in, commend Christ in all of those things. It was said so famously and so well, isn't it, that if Christ is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. So make him Lord of your life. Make him Lord of your church. Make him Lord of your budgets. Make him Lord of your ambitions. Make him Lord of your pleasures. Make him Lord of your relationships. Make him Lord of your mission. All around the world. Plant churches. Charlotte Chapel has a great history of mission. A great pedigree. That is an evidence of God's grace at work among you. May that... May that work continue, and not only continue, but may it continue to expand. And may it result in churches being planted all around the world so that the murderers and the prostitutes and the pimps and the pushers are drawn irresistibly to God's grace. So that the moralists, the self-righteous moralists who are weary of their wasted efforts of self-salvation that all of them come flocking in to taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, Jesus is the light of the world. That was his claim. So how does his light shine? Through us. Through his church. This is God's mission strategy. What a glorious mission strategy it is because it depends entirely upon the work of Christ on the cross. It depends entirely upon the work of the Spirit in our hearts. It depends entirely upon God sovereignly working in our midst so that he is the one that gets all the praise and all the glory, that Jesus is the one who becomes famous and that his Spirit works for his glory. What is there better to be involved in in this? What ambition can be greater than that? That the light of the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. Amen.